Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the divisive nature of vaccine passports and the government's COVID enforcement culture. Plus, what does the federal election mean for Western alienation? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North, Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Great to have you aboard the program here as we drift further and further into a culture of enforcement and coercion as opposed to the education-first mindset that we're all in this together mindset back when it was just two weeks and not two years to flatten the curve. Uh, most notably, we have Pastor Arthur Pal from Calgary, landing in Calgary on a private plane. And the first thing that happens to greet him on Canadian soil is he's arrested, met on the tarmac, taken into custody, and according to his lawyer, charged with an outstanding contempt charge or something like that. That I mean, it doesn't matter at this point. I mean, the, the whole thing about uh, that they used to say about Al Capone is that they couldn't get him on the big crimes, so they got him on tax evasion. That's basically what's happening to all of these so-called COVID criminals. They're going to get you no matter what, and they're going to keep going after you and keep going after you and keep going after you. And it doesn't really matter at a certain point what the underlying charge that sparked it all was about. I saw this in Ontario when the Ontario government was going after churches such as the Church of God in Elmer or other ones in the Waterloo region in eastern Ontario, pastors that were arrested in Alberta, not just Palestine. Uh, but also others. And the thing about it that was most notable is that at a certain point, it's almost cartoonish. Like, I believe that Pastor Jacob Rayom of Trinity Bible Chapel told me at one point that his church had something like $20 million in fines against it. And the government just keeps adding more and more. And it's not even a real number at that point, because there's no way that the church or its leadership can pay it. But the government is just going to keep heaping that on them. And that's the problem is that the government isn't interested in the revenue. They, they want to shut people down. We've in Ontario now had a vaccine passport system in place for indoor dining at restaurants and other things for about a week. And, and now there are some businesses that are saying we're not going to do it. And they're facing fines upwards of $10 million. And a small business cannot afford a $10 million fine. A small business cannot afford, even in a lot of cases, a $50,000 or $100,000 fine. So what the government is hoping that anyone non-compliant will just cease to operate. And anyone who decides to do their conscientious objection to this at a certain point will, like those churches in Ontario and Alberta, just have the building locked on them. So if you're trying to protest, you might get a few weeks out of it, but you're not going to be able to keep it going for all that much longer. Just knowing how this is happening, knowing that the government is making enforcement the first priority. Now, I will say there have been a couple of examples where it's just been a warning. Chris Skye, who's like a, a notable anti-masker, anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, whatever. It seems to be anti-everything. But he had a group of people at a restaurant in my neck of the woods in London, Ontario. And they were all there with apparently not having shown their vaccine passport, not wearing a mask on the way in. And the restaurant has, believe it or not, they, they've been chastised by the London, Ontario mayor. The mayor called them all stupid 
profit or something like that. But they they haven't been fined. They they, they just had to tell the owner of their parent company because they're a franchise as well as the city that okay fine we'll enforce the law moving forward. So so they had their fun. I'm looking at an article about Hamilton that says eleven businesses are under active city investigation. The city is supposedly starting with education but then ramping up to punishment. So uh, one of the women here quoted in this CBC story, Jenna Graham, who owns a, a restaurant called The Harbor Diner, says that this is segregation. It's no different than pre-civil rights racism, and, and she's not going to go down this road. Now, she can take that principled stand all she wants. Eventually, she's going to be forced to make the choice between shutting the doors or going along with it or paying some exorbitant fine that, I mean, I've never been to The Harbor Diner, but I'm guessing The Harbor Diner can't afford to pay. No, no one can when you start talking about fines with how many digits is 10 is fine 10 digit fines at a certain point no one can afford that so this is where we're moving there, there's no way to challenge it there's no way to challenge this remember that the Ontario government right now is in this interim phase where you don't have to use the official Ontario government vaccine passport which doesn't yet exist but you just have to show your proof of vaccination starting near the end of October this shifts and all of a sudden, what you'll have to do is use the government's QR code. And the federal government as well has talked about in December a temporary vaccine passport coming for international travel. And then in about a year's time, maybe they'll have a permanent one. So we're talking about a mechanism here that goes to almost the beginning of 2023. Government is not interested in making this a temporary way of life. And for all that governments and big tech have talked about uh, needing to curb conspiracy theories, government has done more to foster conspiracy theories than it has done to stop them. Because a lot of these conspiracies that the government has been warning us about, like the permanence of these restrictions, the permanence of vaccine passports, these have materialized. These things are not going to go away. So I, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Because I do not believe that it's fair to take this out on businesses. I really don't. I think it's unfair for the government to force the 14 or 16-year-old restaurant host to start checking your vaccine paperwork. But similarly, I think it's unfair for people who object to this to take out their ire on these restaurants and other businesses like gyms who are just trying to get by. So if, if you're getting angry with the restaurant, don't. Just absolutely don't. It is not their problem. They're trying to get by. We should not allow the government to do what it's trying to do, which is divide people and somehow immunize, no pun intended, itself from the criticism and immunize itself from the anger. And you may say, well, you know, why are more restaurants not protesting? It takes a lot of courage. And more importantly, it takes a lot of self-assurance to do what some of these restaurants are doing right now to say, we're not going to check it. We're not going to enforce that. And I don't blame businesses for not wanting to partake in that fight because most of the people that are taking up this fight are going to lose it. And that's the, it's a sad reality, but that's going to be the reality of it. So the problem is not the businesses. The problem is the government. And unfortunately, Canadians have, in the last election, endorsed a government that is completely fine with this. 
And they try to say, yeah, it's up to provinces, but what the liberals have really done is committed to this idea of stratified society. This is why Justin Trudeau is going down the road of trying to make it mandatory to be vaccinated if you want to fly out to see your grandma in British Columbia, or if you want to hop on a train to go back and forth to school or work, or if you want to work in the government. And it's interesting that this is happening when Justin Trudeau has, and the liberals in general, have done more to nationalize, I'd say, the economy in the past. So so it's not just if you're a federal public servant, but also if you work in a federal sector. So theoretically, when I used to host my daily radio show on a CRTC-regulated radio station... I would have been or my job would have been consumed up in this uh, idea, this mandate that the federal government is putting forward, which at this point, interestingly enough, hasn't materialized. It's almost as though Justin Trudeau was trying to use it as a wedge for the conservatives and, and wasn't actually prepared to go the distance on that. So that's going to be the, the problem here that we're going to see more and more of, which is uh, people finding that, yeah, vaccines aren't mandatory, but society is closed off, employment is closed off, travel is closed off. All of these things that they would do are no longer able to happen. And the people like Arthur Pulowski, and interestingly enough, I spoke about Arthur Pulowski a little while ago when that one famous video of him being arrested on the highway uh, took place, and he, the police literally had to carry him, like almost not hogtied, but it looked like he was hogtied. They had to like carry him to their car because he wasn't going along, and, and I defended him. I defended him because this is not in a society that protects freedom of religion the way members of the clergy should be treated for the sole purpose of deciding to open their churches. And I had people reach out to say, oh, well, you know, yeah, you know, maybe, but but have you heard what he said about X? And have you heard his messages? And he's not a guy you should be defending. And, and I say that's a load of nonsense. If we start saying, well, you know, I, I don't support his right to have his church open because he might have said something that I disagree. And to be honest, I, I've not, I don't know much about him. I've never met him. I've never interviewed him. I, I don't care about that game that people like to play of saying, well, you know, yeah, you can't support the right of free speech, for example, of people who use their right to say mean things. I am an absolutist on these things. I support the right of churches and mosques and synagogues and gurdwaras and temples and any other religious venue to be open. I support the right of businesses to find a way to be open. I support the right of people to speak their mind, even if I deplore what they use their right to free speech to express. So I'm not going to say, well, Arthur Pulowski may not be my cup of tea, so I don't care about his rights. I, it makes me care about it even more. Because I want the people that don't like the cut of my jib to stand up for my right to free speech when the liberals decide to go after independent media under Bill C-10 or C-36 when those things inevitably make a comeback in the upcoming parliament. So when I look at the arrest of Pastor Arthur Pulowski, I absolutely think it is egregious. And here's a guy, now, now I may say I'm, not, I'm, I'm a little uneasy about a pastor flying private, but these days that's the only way you can get away with apparently not having to worry about uh, making, uh, you know, being masked in flight or something like that. I, I was on a flight not that long ago. And I had the flight attendant that wanted you to put your mask on between sips. So, you know what? If I could afford to fly private, I, I would do it. I can't fault anyone else for doing that. But what Arthur Pulowski's lawyer says, Sarah Miller, who's a great advocate for free speech, is that this was a contempt charge, like I mentioned earlier, an outstanding contempt charge of which there are likely many against him. He was released on bail late last night. 
and he has to keep the peace and be on good behavior. Now, I don't know how the state in this day and age is uh, defining good behavior, but these are the stipulations that have been heaped upon Arthur Pulowski. And he scheduled him and his brother to be sentenced on October 13th for the supposed crime of violating COVID-19 health orders and having illegal gatherings and conducting services without mandating physical distancing and, and mask mandates and all of these things. So, so here's a guy who's going to be sentenced. Now, I don't know if they're going to put him in jail. I don't know if they're going to give him a steep fine. I don't know if they're going to sentence him to community service or whatever. But that's coming in two weeks. And we as a country still have to reckon with the idea that we have put pastors behind bars under the auspices of preserving and protecting public health. And a lot of people will point to these stories and say, well, these are the reasons we can't get back to normal. No. People protesting Orwellian orders are not the problem. They're not the barriers to reopening, the reasons that we're not reopening. The reasons we're not reopening, the reasons that normal seems like a distant pipe dream at this point, is because of governments that are doing everything they can to prevent and delay normal, to make us forget what normal even is, let alone the idea that it's possible. And that's why there is going to be a permanence to this. Look at it. Israel is a great example. Israel was held up as being the successful story for how you roll out vaccination. They had its population vaccinated before Canada was even putting his pants on in the morning. And now in Israel, you are not fully vaccinated unless you've gotten your third booster shot. Some people are going to be looking at fourth booster shots. In parts of Canada, third boosters are already becoming the norm, including in Ontario and Alberta. Now, so far, you don't need a booster to be considered fully vaccinated, but there's going to be a point at which that flips because these have gone on so long, because these restrictions will have gone on so long that the supposed immunity you have from dose one and two no longer applies. And it's the opposite of endemic. When they talk about living with COVID and just treating it as though it's endemic, which uh, Dina Hinshaw in Alberta was pilloried for saying, now it's going to become the permanent pandemic where you need to get your booster shot every three months, every six months, maybe you can get by a year in order to be seen as fully vaccinated. Now, this is something that people should have the right to do if you want that protection. But there are a lot of people that were vaccine hesitant, but ultimately went along with the two shots because of whatever reason. Maybe they wanted to be able to dine out. Maybe they wanted to travel. Who cares? People made their call that are not going to go along with that. Then all of a sudden the goalposts have moved yet again and you need a third shot. Or it goes to children even younger than 12. Toronto is, Health Canada has not approved the vaccines for use on children under 12. Toronto is already raring to go. They're itching to start vaccinating kids as young as five years old. So Toronto is saying, yeah, we're, we're ready. Just give us the kids. We're going to vaccinate these five-year-olds. A lot of parents that are very pro-vaccine got vaccinated themselves. I've heard from them. They've emailed me. You've emailed me about this saying, yeah, I was fine getting it, but I am not at all subjecting my child to this. And people are going to have to reckon with that. People are going to make their decisions, but this is not going to happen without schools eventually making vaccine vaccination mandatory if you want your kid to go to a public or heck, even a private school. They've already done it with post-secondary institutions. It's going to happen as well to public and perhaps non-public schools. So this is where we are headed. And, and I'm very 
supportive of the idea that if you don't start standing firm now, you're not going to get a chance later. And this is why I've said I'm, I'm not at all an anti-vaxxer, but I am a civil libertarian. And we need more people who are fully vaccinated, who are completely okay with vaccination to stand up and say, yeah, but, but what about choice? And, and not just this mythical idea of choice, but specifically this idea of choice that's been shared with us for the last year and a half by politicians who say, yeah, yeah, it's never going to be mandatory. We encourage it. We're never going to require it. Well, whatever happened to that? We're all in this together becomes we're arresting you on the tarmac because you want to have church services, which becomes we're fining you $10 million if you don't want to check the vaccine paperwork of people dining at your restaurant. So the we're all in this together has never been a bigger lie than it is right now. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Now that we have the federal election behind us, and I think all the ballots, or at least almost all of the ballots have been counted, I wanted to turn to some provincial politics that may have some national implications, specifically in Alberta. In October, Albertans will, on October 18th specifically, alongside their municipal elections, vote for Senate candidates, and they'll also vote in a referendum on whether equalization should be abolished. Now, equalization is, of course, the constitutional mechanism that has money taken from the wealthy provinces and redistributed to the poorer provinces. Alberta has always been on the losing end of this transaction, whereas Quebec has always been on the winning end of it. Now, the problem is, even if 100% of Albertans were to vote yes on this, it isn't binding. The Constitution cannot be unilaterally changed by provinces, although what the Alberta government has long held and what Premier Jason Kenney has long held is that such a move would at least give a mandate, and there is precedent that says the federal government would have to negotiate in good faith. So if that many people are saying something's got to change here, the federal government would have a legal obligation to at the very least engage with them. So that's where this would be. And and Jason Kenney has said the referendum would give a bargaining chip for this. The problem here is that Western alienation in the last federal election didn't really seem to be all that big a thing. And I'm not saying it's not a thing. I'm just saying it didn't manifest as such. The Maverick Party did not do particularly well. Part of that was because they had a, a small group of candidates. But more importantly, a lot of the narratives uh, that are around the West were not discussed. No one in the federal election was really talking about them. So if you were a Westerner, you didn't really have a reason to get up and start talking about, oh, well, we need to support this candidate or or that candidate. Uh, Perhaps the absence of this discussion would have moved people. But I know from covering this issue and, and spending time out West that a lot of people have said, you know what, if Justin Trudeau gets in again, it's done. We're, we're just over. We want to separate and nothing short of that will work. Jason Kenney, the Alberta Premier, had a press conference last week, and I wanted to put that question to him. Listen, what does the federal election mean, not just for Alberta in the context of the Alberta economy, but specifically, what does it mean when we're looking at how Western alienation will manifest and that upcoming referendum? This is that exchange with Premier Kenney. Good evening, Premier. Curious about what the federal election means for Albertans. We have a, a growing problem of, of Western alienation. A lot of people that were on the fence between simply voting yes on the referendum and, and pushing for a more aggressive independence or separation measure uh, have often said that if Justin Trudeau gets reelected, that's it. 
curious what this means for, for your plans moving forward with the referendum and, and trying to keep the peace. Well, I would note, Andrew, that the uh, Western, the de facto Western Separatist Party, the Maverick Party, got only about 1% of the vote in Alberta last night, and they couldn't even field a full slate of candidates. Um, I think that's uh, probably understates support for separation in this province significantly, but it, 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 is, it, it is a signal that uh, I believe the vast majority of Albertans are frustrated with how the country works. Uh, what frustrates them most is the expectation from the Ottawa that we generate so much wealth, so much tax revenue, so many jobs, and yet are hampered by policy after policy clobbering our biggest industry. And uh, so that's the heart of the frustration. As you know, it, it has a long history. Um, and, and yet, despite that frustration, I believe that, that the vast majority of Albertans are also proud Canadians. Uh, the majority of Albertans went out and voted in a federal election yesterday. And as I say, 1% voted for a separatist party. So what Jason Kenney takes from that poor maverick showing, which he concedes likely understates the, the effect of independence and separation, is that most Albertans are happy to be in Canada and that if they were unhappy, they would have voted for the maverick party. Now, one of the dynamics that I, I've talked about in the past is that a lot of the independence-minded people are more interested in provincial change. They're more interested in voting for the Wild Rose Independence Party led by Paul Hinman, who's been on the show a couple of times than they are in seeking a, a federal alternative in a party that didn't really manage to get off the ground. Now, I mean, we'll see on, on October 18th, and we'll talk in a moment with someone who's running the campaign or a campaign to get people to vote yes on that referendum, to, to get yes on that idea of ending equalization, of, of stripping it from the Constitution. So I would actually be very nervous about doing what Premier Kenny is doing here in downplaying the anger and frustration, especially with the Liberals having been re-elected. Remember, it was a great shame, I think, that Western integrity, Western alienation, keeping the country together was not really discussed. No one cared about it. There was so much oxygen being given to Quebec from the Liberals and the Conservatives and none given to the West, except for some passing references to pipelines, which which certainly are important to Alberta, but are not the be-all and end-all. They're not the exclusive area of focus. Even within the energy sector, pipelines are not the sole area of concern. So we have a Liberal government that doesn't need Western votes, a Liberal government that doesn't particularly care about Western lives and Western jobs, a Liberal government that wants to subject everyone to a carbon tax to vilify the type of energy on which the West relies, and more importantly, a government that is capitulating to Quebec, which basically wants to just claim a veto over any energy projects, which thinks that it's all dirty energy. And we'll, like I said, we'll talk about this in a moment with Kevin Lacey. But the whole point is the West has nothing going for it right now in the federal government. Oh, no, no, no. The Liberals elected a couple of MPs in Alberta. Great. <laughs> that is not going to do anything. If like Randy Boissonneau is all of a sudden like the Minister of, of Western Economic Diversification, I don't think anyone in the West will be further ahead than they are prior to that re-election or even had uh, Conservatives manage to win. So all of this just to say it's bad news for the West. And right now, the only outlet they really have is that referendum vote. But again, it's not binding. It's not compelling. What's going to happen if Justin Trudeau looks at a referendum that was successful and only has to just say, yeah, yeah, I'll hear you out.
I mean, bargaining in good faith. He has to sit down with them. It's not compelling any action. So nevertheless, that's not to say it isn't important, which is why there has been this campaign launched by Kevin Lacey, who is the Alberta director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, called Fight Equalization, telling Albertans why they should vote against equalization. Kevin Lacey joins me now. Kevin, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Andrew, thanks for having me. So we, we've got a few weeks left until the referendum. For those who haven't been following it here, I know the question is about removing it from the Constitution, but, but fundamentally, what is really at play here for people? Fundamentally, it's about the unfairness of the equalization formula to the province of Alberta. And what the problem is, uh, is that Alberta for years has been contributing far more uh, than we've been getting back. And you would think that that good, that, that contributing that amount of money would buy you some goodwill that it would get you something in return. And instead, all we've gotten as a result of all those contributions is we've seen our energy blocked in respect to pipelines. Uh, we've battled with uh, British Columbia and Quebec, both with regards to getting those pipelines built. Uh, we've seen a carbon tax from Ottawa. So we keep contributing and contributing and contributing and, and being generous. Yet at the same time, uh, provinces in the federal government are basically sticking it to us uh, and not and not giving us the things that we need to succeed. Yeah, and I think Quebec is a particularly notable example of this. The Quebec government, even an ostensibly conservative government in Quebec, has come in with a very anti-Canadian energy agenda and plan. We have the Premier Francois Legault calling Alberta oil dirty energy, yet Quebec still insists on the money from Alberta that only comes, generally speaking, because of the success of this sector. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, so the entire equalization envelope is about $20 billion. Quebec gets about $13 billion of that, which means they get 65% of all the equalization dollars. And to put that in perspective, each Quebec resident, that equals about $1,500 per person. That's a lot of money that Quebec is getting from the rest of Canada. Uh, at the same time, then, Quebec, while it takes this amount of money, uh, from Canada rejects Canada's resources and rejects particularly Alberta's resources, the one that's contributing a large portion of that money to it. Imagine if it was, if uh, Andrew, you were meeting your friends and uh, you were generous enough to uh, provide them um, some extra, little extra cash, and then you asked them for a little favor and they told you to go, to go pound sand. That's essentially what Quebec is doing to Alberta. And for years, we've cut, Alberta's just kind of put up with it. And sure, they've made a few statements here and there. This goes way back to Peter Lougheed in the 1980s, uh, when Lougheed, uh, during both the Charlottetown Accord and the Meech Lake Accord, put his foot down and said that Alberta wasn't going to contribute more than their fair share. Uh, but yet it continued. Uh, then Ralph Klein came in. He stood up to Ottawa. But then the payments kept continued uh, after Klein. Then the government changed. And even Premier Notley, who was an NDP uh, premier, she put her foot down and said this equalization formula is not fair to Alberta. And nothing ever changed. So to Jason Kenney's credit, uh, the current premier of Alberta, uh, he's decided that, look, enough is enough. Uh, we can keep going to Canada and complaining about the equalization formula and complaining about what Quebec's saying, but we're not getting anywhere. So we need to go out and have this referendum, which is happening on October 18th, and show Canada that Albertans are mad that their money is being mistreated and they want to see real change. And to be honest, at this point, I'm not sure what is really left for the government of Alberta to do. They're really at a last straw. 
And this is a last ditch effort to try to make some real changes. Is the issue the formula for equalization or the existence of equalization itself? With the caveat, for those not familiar, that actually getting rid of it would require a constitutional amendment, but amending the formula is actually relatively simple. Yeah, I think the, I think for us in particular, what we want to see is reform of the system. Uh, and we also, I think a lot of this, Andrew, is actually political, it, which is we want to assert uh, what the grievance of Alberta is in the hope that recipient provinces will understand the position of the province and start to embrace some of the things uh, that is allowing this money to come into their province. So really what I think we're looking for is some goodwill on behalf of many of these premiers uh, who are sticking it to Alberta. Um, so reform is part of it. The, the equalization question actually asks, do we support removing the constitution, uh, removing equalization from the constitution um, and I think that's really the whole point of that is to just kind of lay the marker for what Alberta expects in the upcoming years with regards to continued negotiations on equalization. Yeah, and, and one thing that I think is important to point out here is that Alberta's obviously had some great times over the years, but in the last few years with a downturn in the sector, uh, the oil and gas sector, which is the, the predominant source of wealth in Alberta, things have been a bit tough, but the province has still been on the hook for equalization in those, uh, in those more difficult years. Yeah, and that's been a really tough pill to swallow because you haven't, like over the last six and a half years, Alberta's really had a, a rough go. And many, you know, at one point we were in double digits in unemployment, uh, one of the highest unemployments in all of Canada, high, highest unemployment rates in all of Canada. Um, so we've had a really rough time. Some of that is as a result of uh, poor, man, poor policies out of Ottawa. Some of that is also uh, related outside the border, which is just the cost of energy um, and the price of oil. Um, but Family Severe had a really hard time. They had, the province has not had the money to fund, say, schools and hospitals uh, and building new roads. Yet they see down uh, a few, you know, down a few flights away in Quebec, things are going really, really well. And uh, meanwhile, our money, when it's needed here at home, is going to a province like Quebec, which is which doesn't need it. So that's the type of reform that I think um, we need to see. And I think if you're one of those families that's struggling to make ends meet and watching your tax dollars go to other parts of the country, while at the same time your schools are suffering, um, you got a big problem with that. Yeah, and, and I know that just looking at the numbers here, you mentioned how much uh, the average Quebecer, or how much it works out to be on average that a, a Quebecer is receiving from this. On the flip side of it, you have the average Albertan uh, being uh, being having to pay $600, I, I believe it is on this, $3 billion a year that the province is spending. And if you're an Alberta taxpayer, that's $3 billion that's not going to fix the roads, that's not going into the healthcare system, that's which right. we've been hearing a lot about in Alberta, that's not going into schools. That's a lot of money. Yeah, and the, the fiscal situation here isn't that hot either. Um, and, you know, that's maybe a debate for another show of how we ended up there. Um, but given that, that Alberta families are struggling themselves, and I think if we most families and most Albertans are willing to be generous with the rest of the country, they have been for, for many, many years. Um, but given these tough times when everyone else is cutting back, the equalization formula, actually, with the way it's set up, is going to increase over the next few years. So this commitment um, that Albertans are under at a time when they don't have any money is actually just increasing. Um, and that may puts a strain on the public services even higher uh, and makes it more difficult to take that, these, that this money is being sent to Ottawa. 
So let's talk about the, the campaign itself. I'm assuming you're doing more than just chatting with me, and although I, I love having you on the show. Uh, what are you going to be doing between now and October 18th? So we've launched uh, a separate we're we've launched a separate society called Society for um, Albertans Against Equalization. Uh, we're going to be heading out and campaigning on the road, uh, trying to convince Albertans to vote yes in this referendum um, to remove equalization from the constitution. Uh, we've just launched new radio ads um, that are on our website. Feel free to check them out. Um, that are uh, that are talking about this issue. Our new billboards will be going up later on in the week. Um, and we'll be continuing to do things like you and I are doing today, Andrew, just to try to talk to more and more Canadians and more and more, particularly Albertans, about getting out to vote on October 18th, voting yes in the uh, referendum, and finally standing up for Alberta so that Alberta can make a stand and don't, don't continually see our money go uh, to when our money is not respected. And what constitutes a win for you on this? Uh, I think, look, I think... We're going to have to see election night what the win is. Um, these cons let's be honest, uh, referendums in Canada are always unpredictable. And uh, there's a lot of uh, politics going on in Alberta that's far uh, outside of the referendum. Um, but really anything over 50% is a victory for us. Yeah, that's the majority of Albertans saying that they can't really abide by the status quo. So, very well said. You can find out more about the campaign at fightequalization.ca. Kevin Lacey is the campaign director and Alberta director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Kevin, thanks for coming on today. Good to talk to you as always. Thanks for having me. We will certainly be covering that in the weeks to come. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show and to Kevin Lacey for coming on. We will talk to you later this week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news. <laughs>